as we sit and quiet ourselves and tend to all the emotions and all the stories and all the history and all the plans, then we also can experience the vast vision, the timeless vision of the Buddha. And then there comes this common sense of humanity that we're just, this is us. Then our heart expands and we realize, yeah, this is what we're called to love. And if anything, maybe the whole art of meditation is simply the art of love. Welcome to a Voices of Esalen Archive Edition. I'm Sam Stern. Today we feature a lecture by Jack Cornfield and Trudy Goodman, given at Esalen as part of a week-long training in 2018. Jack Cornfield is one of the key teachers to introduce Buddhist mindfulness practice to the West. He trained as a Buddhist monk in the monasteries of Thailand, India, and Burma, and has taught meditation internationally since 1974. After graduating from Dartmouth College in Asian Studies in 1967, he joined the Peace Corps and worked on tropical medicine teams in the Mekong River Valley. He later met and studied as a monk under the Buddhist master Ajahn Chan. Returning to the United States, Jack co-founded the Insight Meditation Center in Barrie, Massachusetts, as well as the Spirit Rock Center in Whitaker, California, with fellow meditation teachers Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein. His books have been translated into 20 languages and sold more than a million copies. They include A Wise Heart, Living Dharma, and After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. He holds a PhD in clinical psychology and is a father, husband, and activist. Trudy Goodman has devoted much of her life to practicing Buddhist meditation. She is one of the earliest teachers of mindfulness-based stress reduction and co-taught with John Kabat-Zinn at the MBSR clinic at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. In 1995, she co-founded the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy, the first center in the world dedicated to exploring the synergy of these two disciplines. From 1991 to 1998, Trudy was a resident Zen teacher at the Cambridge Buddhist Association. She then moved to Los Angeles and founded Insight LA, the first center in the world to combine training in both Buddhist insight vipassana meditation and non-sectarian mindfulness and compassion practices. After becoming a mother, Trudy co-founded a school for distressed children, practicing mindfulness-based psychotherapy with children, parents, teenagers, couples, and individuals. She has trained a generation of teachers, mindfulness humanitarians who make mindfulness and meditation classes available for professional caregivers, social justice and environmental activists, unsung individuals working on the front lines of suffering, all done with tenderness, courage, and a simple commitment to holding hands together. She is also the voice of Trudy the Love Barbarian on the Netflix series Midnight Gospel. This is just an amazing talk. They cover so much ground. Trudy and Jack are married, for those who don't know, and they comment insightfully on their relationship during this talk. Please enjoy. One final note. At one point, Jack and Trudy comment on an Esalen community member who died unexpectedly in 2018. They are, in fact, referring to Weston Call, who was a friend to so many people at Esalen and in Big Sur. This episode is dedicated to his memory. Good evening again, um, those of you, most of you who are part of this beautiful week with Shauna and Dan and Tija and all the rest of us. Um, and then staff who've been invited. How many of you are on staff, just to know? Oh, wonderful. First of all, just thank you for all your good work. At, I've been coming to Esalen for 45 years. and. The staff feels really great now. It feels very supportive and beautiful and helpful. So thank you for all that you do for us. So part of this evening, Trudy and I will talk some, and then we're going to make time for questions and answers and dialogue. Part of it is in response to the silence that we've begun starting midday today and will continue through tomorrow morning. Um, and kind of honoring the sitting and walking and contemplative time you've given to yourself. And then part of it is also a response to how we take this and carry this in our lives, because it's one thing to be at Esalen, and some of you might already be signing up for another Esalen time in your mind before it ends. But another really important one is how do we embody it, what do we carry, what, um, what's transformed us or what informs us. And one of the most important things to understand about mindfulness, which is one of the 
central pillars of our practice today and this week and so forth, and it's been said, Shauna and others have said it, Dan, is that it's not just about sitting in meditation. There's a kind of cultural belief somehow, I'm talking about mindfulness, that it must mean close your eyes and be mindful. But in fact, mindfulness has two parts. The word in Sanskrit, sati sampajanya, um, is both to see clearly or to be present and then to respond. So there's the presence, that's one part, and then there's the mindful response, that's the other. So it's relational in that way, just as we breathe in and breathe out. And in Zen they say there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden, and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. It's really the garden of the world. So you quiet your mind and open your heart, center yourself, and realize that you can live from loving awareness, that who you really are is this loving awareness. And once you quiet the mind and tend your heart and heal what needs to be held with compassion, then you get up and you sweep the garden of the world. And what this teaches you is your sitting and walking practice, your formal training, is to see with the eyes of a Buddha, which is who you really are, that the world is like this. It has joy and sorrow and gain and loss and fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain, birth and death. And that you can bow to this and say, this is the, this is the human realm that I've been born into. So the Buddha seated under the Bodhi tree could see Mara come, Mara sort of the embodiment in the, in the Indian mythology of all the temptations and difficulties of life. And Mara came with this armies to attack all the aggression. And Mara came with all the temptations. And each time the Buddha would say, I see you, Mara. Is that you, Mara? Oh, I see you. No struggle, not getting lost, just saying this is the way things are. And so as we practice, there's some way in which we can actually see the world with the eyes of a Buddha, that this is the way that it is. And it brings, it, it, it brings a radical shift in relationship to ourselves and to one another. A woman who was in the publishing world in New York City brought her mother to live with her in her big apartment in New York um, because her mother was losing her memory and had Alzheimer's. And she got a caregiver while she was away working at the publishing house. And she came home one day and all the books, she had this big library of beautiful books and so forth, were strewn about the floor and in some boxes. And her mother declared, I'm tired of all these dusty old books. I'm going to give them to my dentist. That was sort of the state of mind she was in. And the woman got really upset and said to the caregiver, how could you let her do this? You're supposed to be taking care of her, all my precious books, everything, you know, going to her dentist, that's crazy. And the caregiver wasn't in that place at all and looked back and said, Madam, she said, Alzheimer's is like this. Said if this woman who's lost so much feels so out of control of her life now, if it gives her some comfort to take the books down and put them in the box, boxes today I pack them, tomorrow I unpack them and put them on the shelf. If this gives comfort to a woman who's lost so much, I am quite happy to do this, thank you. I just love being with her. And you can hear the difference of the kind of reactivity, we want the world to be a certain way, or we want our body or our mind to be a certain way. And then the understanding first that this is the way that it is. And then there comes in the capacity for compassion. And so that's the second vision that's possible. We see with the eyes of the Buddha. And we also then feel or open to the world with the great heart of the Buddha. And we sense our common humanity, that it's not just him or her and so forth but that we're all in this together. We're all in the cycle of birth and death, 
changes in our body and changes in the world. As you could hear when we did our panel this morning and talked about what we would say to our 19 or 20 year old self, it's easy to see us all sit up here and imagine how together we are, right? That we've got it all together and that it's been easy. But then you could actually begin to hear, oh, everybody, everybody has their measure of tears and their struggle and their family difficulties, if not in the beginning, then somewhere in the middle or the end. Come on, raise your hand if you don't. I want to meet them, meet you. And then there comes this common sense of humanity that we're just, this is us. And how do we hold this? Then, then our heart expands and we realize, yeah, this is what we're called to love. And if anything, maybe the whole art of meditation is simply the art of love. And then we also, as we sit and quiet ourselves and tend to all the emotions and all the stories and all the history and all the plans, all those things that say, you know, plans are like this, sadness is like this, joy is like this, this is what makes up our humanity. Then we also can experience the vast vision, a timeless vision of the Buddha. Buddhist text says, like a star at dawn, a flash of lightning in the summer cloud, a rainbow, an echo, a dance, a dream, that everything appears for time and then disappears. It's the way that it is. And it's kind of uncertain. We know it'll change, but we don't quite know how. And somehow we learn how to relax with that and open to see the star at dawn and say, oh, this is the the star that's about to disappear, this is the rainbow. Let us really be present for this moment as it is. And as we see in that way, we start to sense that who we are is not just limited by the events of the world, but that we're connected to something vast and mysterious and greater. And you know it, getting quiet at this magic place in Esalen, all of that opens to you. Thich Nhat Hanh, who writes, this body is not me, I'm not limited by this body. I'm life without boundaries. I've never been born and I've never died. Like the ocean and sky filled with stars, they are all manifestations of the wondrous true mind. Since before time I've been free, birth and death are only doors through which we pass, sacred thresholds on our journey. Birth and death are a game of hide and seek. So laugh with me, hold my hand, let us say goodbye to meet again soon. We will meet again tomorrow. We will meet at the source of every moment. We meet each other in all forms of life because this is who we are. And there comes, we all know it, you know it when you've been making love or walking in the high mountains or listening to an amazing piece of music, sacred music or taking sacred medicine or being there for the birth of a child or holding the hand of someone as they die and the gates between the worlds open and you realize that you're part of this great dance of mystery and this is what you learn as you sit. Yes, you learn to be with all the experience, but you also learn to rest in loving awareness itself, in that vast consciousness that's who you really are. My teacher, Mahagosananda, who was also a colleague and a friend, we lived in the forest monasteries for a long time was the Gandhi of Cambodia. And during the Cambodian genocide and Holocaust, we were hidden away in these remote jungle monasteries. And as soon as he was able to, he was a beautiful practitioner and a great scholar. He hurried back um, to work in the refugee camps, hundreds of thousands of people who poured out. And 19 members, all 19 members of Gosananda's family were murdered. His temple was burned, the village, all intellectuals were killed, but he was saved because he was out of the country. And so he said, we have to build a temple in the refugee camps. And this was one of them, several, Sakeo Kawidung, were filled with underground Khmer Rouge who said, if anyone goes to the temple, we will shoot you and kill you when you get out of this camp. But he got permission to make a little roof and a platform and put an altar. And we went through the camp and rang the bell. 
and 25,000 people filled the square. And he sat up and I thought, now what can he say? Here's a woman with only one of her three surviving children. And here's a grandmother with, you know, only three of the 18 grandchildren she had or an uncle. The faces of trauma, as you know, refugees everywhere. I thought, what will he say? And he looked out and he put his hands together and he began to chant in Khmer, Cambodian and in Pali like Sanskrit, chants that they hadn't heard in some years. This verse from the Buddha, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And he sang it and chanted it over and over. And pretty soon they all started to sing and chant with him. And 25,000 people were weeping as they sang it. And I looked and I said to myself, in the midst of so much sorrow, he has spoken a truth that's even bigger than the sufferings that they have to hold. He then was nominated for the Nobel Prize a whole bunch of times and spent 15 years leading groups on foot back to their villages. He said, you can't ride in a bus or the back of a truck. You have to reclaim your land with a bell and a gong, chanting loving kindness with every step. Thousands of people following him to reclaim their land and their hearts. So coming down here, Trudy and I traveling, we were with some family and heard about dear friend who had lost a a child who had just died and kind of work with them some. And then coming to Esalen, <clears throat> I understand that there's been a death in the community and it really touches my heart to know this of a young person who was, you know, part of the community, not on the property, but not far away. Um, and here we are, we sit in the midst of this mystery of birth and death. And this is the reality that we're given. There's our individual lives and the lives of those around us, which are really quite tentative, you know. Um, and here at Esalen on the edge of the great ocean, somehow we're invited to take our seat at this mystery. And it's not just the personal losses that many have spoken of in our group, but there's climate change and continuing racism and injustice and the refugees and the suffering around the world that we also carry the cultural anxiety. And in one way we can live in denial about this, that it's not so, that we're exempt, that we can hide. And our culture is pretty good at that, I'm sorry to say. But there's another alternative. Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh said, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person remained centered and calm on the boat, they showed the way for everyone else to survive. And so here we're given in community, in family, in our lives, joy and sorrow, birth and death. We're given the responsibility to hold ourselves in a web of love. And we become, guess who? As Miss Piggy would say, moi. We become that one person on the boat. And to do that is to become a bodhisattva, a being who turns the compass of their heart to the direction of compassion to say, no matter what happens, even if the sun arises in the west, no matter the changes, I will bring compassion and care for, to alleviate suffering for the well-being of all, all who surround me. And we trust somehow that that actually is important and meaningful because it's easy to get lost in despair these days, you know. And somehow they actually want you to feel like you're powerless and that, you know, that despair is, is kind of woven into the news narrative. But here's Mahatma Gandhi. When I despair, so if you despair, just know you have good company and common humanity here. Gandhi G also despairing. When I despair, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love has always won. Yes, there have been murderers and tyrants, and for a time they can seem invincible, but in the end, 
they always fall. Think of it, always. And this gives heart from this timeless place when you quiet the mind and tend yourself to realize that there is a way you can live in this world and sow and plant seeds of beauty and stand up for what matters and tend your own life with its measure of tears and its beauty. That this is possible for you and Esalen, especially for those of you who are on staff, is a temple. And you are the pujaris. The pujaris is the word in, in India for the people who sweep the floor in the temple and clean the altar and um, take the prasad and offer the food. You're actually the closest to the gods, basically. Believe it or not. You're the keepers of the fire in the temple. And you allow the pilgrims who want to renew and remember their connection with what's holy to come into your temple and you tend them so that something new and beautiful can be born in them. And this is the work of the heart. Yes, you think you're sitting today just to become quiet and learn how to heal in some inner ways, but you're also learning a kind of courage and a presence and, and a deep trust that you can go through and hold the joys and sorrows of life, not as a grim duty, but that you have beauty in this world and gifts to offer it. And that you can trust, as my friend Dina Metzger, a great poet, and some of you may have seen her, there's a famous picture of her from like 30 years ago. Um, a wonderful poet and activist and so forth. She had a mastectomy, one breast removed, and she had a great dragon tattooed across her chest and her body before tats were so you know, hip and everybody had them. And there she is with one hand in the air and this huge dragon across her chest, you know, reciting some beautiful poem that she'd written. She writes, give me everything mangled and bruised and I will make a light of it to make you weep and we will have rain and begin again. And for all those who passed, who we honor and who died and we have to honor and do our rituals and our prayers, and for those who are alive and for those who are coming in, we do our practice not just for ourselves, but we become that bodhisattva who sits and then goes out and mends what we can and touches and sweeps the garden of the world. So the work you do is here cannot be separated from the gifts that you offer with every interaction and every breath as you move through the world. Today's podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes life throws you a curveball and you need someone to talk to. I personally am a huge fan, a huge supporter of therapy. It's helped me get through some of the roughest times in my life. And one thing that's really cool about BetterHelp is that they provide online therapy directly to you at a price that is more affordable than traditional offline therapy. So it's a great way to invest in yourself without breaking the bank. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional therapy done securely by video or audio online, and it's available to everyone. So when you sign up, you'll match with a therapist according to your needs. And who knows, it might take a few tries to find the right fit for you. So BetterHelp makes it easy and free to change therapists if you need to. They also have a special offer for our listeners. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash That's 10% off your first month of online therapy at BetterHelp.com slash Beautiful, Jack. <laughs> oh, thank you, dear. <laughs> I'm kind of mesmerized. <laughs> yeah. I'm really sorry for the loss that this community has suffered. And, um, and I think it's, it's really true what Jack is saying that may not be so clear to you when you're in the midst of maybe an unfamiliar silence for many of you and doing your practice of sitting and walking and trying to be silent, to remember to be silent. It can be not always clear what this has to do with helping others or helping the world or anything really, except the struggle to sort of corral your own 
mind and heart to be present. And that word bodhisattva means awakening beings, and we are all awakening beings here that we've set our hearts on both loving awareness, falling in love with awareness. I am in love with awareness, and what I fear most is unconsciousness, my own and other people's, because mostly the people that have hurt me in my life have not been so conscious about (coughs) deciding to do that. Um, It's more like a side effect or byproduct of other things they were doing. So loving awareness, loving consciousness, loving getting to know ourselves. And there's a shift in our practice when we start to, when something we see that might be hard to see, like somebody was talking about over here yesterday, I think Matt, that, that instead of it just being like terrible news about ourselves, it might still be, but it's also something that we want to see. We want to know. And when that shift happens where we actually want to know because we know that's where the pay dirt is in our practice, um, then we are truly loving awareness. And then there's the loving awareness of trying to suffuse our mindfulness practice with some tenderness and compassion so that it doesn't, as I said, devolve into that sort of self-surveillance feeling. And we all share, like, we share a great vulnerability. My Zen teacher, Kobenchino Otokawa, Soto Zen monk, used to say, spiritually, we are all the same size. But I didn't believe him. He seemed so much more enlightened than, certainly, than I. And then um, he went on to say, six feet deep. Remember that program, Six Feet Under. Like, we are all the same size because we all are facing this vulnerability of our mortality. And it's just completely true for each each one of us. And although the worlds and the lives that we construct seem solid and our relationships seem more or less stable, and... Uh, You know, there are things we definitely count on in this life, like when you go home, that your couch will still be in the living room. Um, There are just things that seem so solid and that we count on, on being ongoing in our lives. And yet, the Buddha expressed it so clearly. Whatever has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away. Every single thing. What do we know about all our relationships? Everyone. Yeah, they will end. If only because we end. You know, they will end. And sometimes things end in a way that feels it's in the natural order of things. We know that when we grow old, dying happens at a certain point. And sometimes there are deaths that are really out-of-order deaths, like when a child dies. Uh, before a parent dies. You know the Zen story of the people who went to get a blessing from a great teacher and they climb a million steps up the mountain and they're sweaty and they're out of breath and they sit down and get ready for their blessing and the teacher says, may your grandparents die, may your parents die, may you die, and may your children die. The person's incensed. Wait a minute, we came for a blessing, not a curse. And then the teacher points out, if it happens in that order, that is a blessing in our lives. We don't think of it that way, but that is actually a blessing. Um, An out-of-order death is painful, and deaths from wars and violence are more, more painful. In the Heart Sutra, which is a kind of, um, almost like the national anthem of Zen, they chatted every day in the Zen monasteries, and, and part of the chant goes, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. How many of you have heard this before? Yeah, quite a few of you. It's easier for us to understand that emptiness is form, 
that everything is, arises out of nothing. And if you don't understand it, watch a baby be born, you know, and then you understand it. It's a little harder to understand that form is emptiness. But again, sit with someone who is dying while they die and after they die, and then it's easier to understand that. And at the end of the Heart Sutra, it's really a kind of hymn, an ode to the emptiness of everything, the emptiness that, as Dan said, is fullness and richness that is our life, life in the form of each one of us. And it says, Gate, gate, paragate, parasam gate, bodhiswaha. And this is a mantra that is usually translated as uh, gone, gone, gone beyond, uh, gone beyond, and then homage to that process of transcending and going beyond the, beyond the rim into the hub or into the plane of possibilities. Um, the translation that Coben used was different. He said, falling apart, falling apart, everything... I'm paraphrasing, falling apart, falling apart, everything constantly falling apart, it can't be helped. And that was his translation of the mantra at the end of the Heart Sutra. Uh, The first time I saw it, I was shocked. What do you mean, everything's falling apart? Uh, It just stimulated all of my anxieties, but um, (laughs) all the women in my family have a lot of anxiety. I think that's probably why I meditated so much. But then I realized this is also a great comfort because it's true. And it's like what Jack was saying, just acknowledging the universality. This is true. And then we don't have to struggle with it quite quite so much. We can accept falling apart, falling apart, all together falling apart. It can't be helped. We're doing this together, this falling apart. In a way, retreat is where we come to be safe so we can fall apart more consciously and not have to maintain our social persona and um, looking good and really know that we're taken care of. So it's safe to let ourselves just fall apart and see what's, what's there, what's here, what's here for us. So we can see this falling apart, not just in the the aging of our bodies um, and when we look in the mirror. And even if you're really young, I I remember being really young, like like 24, and I was watching the circles under my eyes, seeing, did they morph into a little wrinkle or not? I mean, we're very aware of this. And if you're not aware, watch a child grow up. They lose their teeth. I mean, what could be weirder than having your teeth get loose and fall out when you're little, right? And it happens. I mean, it's weird to get teeth. You know, those little gummy, gummy babies. <laughs> and they're getting along fine, nursing with their little gums, and then suddenly, teeth. Anyway, um, <laughs> there's so many ways we can see impermanence. And appreciate this uh, this altogether falling apart nature of our lives and we can see it in the fall of countries and civilizations and democracies and hopefully not ours but we can see it and suddenly it doesn't seem so unthinkable or impossible for this to happen for Europe to fall apart for America to not be great anymore. Uh, (laughs) But we can be great again. Um, Please vote. (laughs) It's painful, isn't it? Um, It's painful. And we can see it in the, well, we don't really see it, but we learn about the collapse of stars even. We see it inside. We see it inside with our thoughts and feelings. Some feelings feel like they'll never go away. 
we want them to, they never will. Sometimes I have such a brilliant thought and it's so, so interesting and fascinating and I know it will be like great in a Dharma talk that I don't write it down because how could you forget such a great thought? But guess what? Sometimes 10 minutes later, irretrievable, gone, gone beyond. So intellectually we can, you know, we know all these things, um, but we don't really know it in our bones until we slow into experience, get quiet, and give ourselves the gift of retreat. Retreat is the best place, one of the best places. Parenting is another good place, and the places we've mentioned, being with, being by the ocean is a great place. I live in LA where the ocean is really the only wilderness that we have, but it is a wilderness. And you can walk into the ocean naked or with your little bathing suit on and imagine you're just going swimming, and maybe you are, but you're also walking into a wilderness, completely vulnerable. That's why some people never go in, I think. We enter the unknown every time that we step into the waves. Um, and when I say we're almost naked, it's also because we're also largely unaware of the creatures who live there, um, whose world it is. I actually love open water swimming, um, especially in the ocean. And uh, the ocean where I live, it's surprisingly cold actually. Although this summer, it's kind of tropical. And it's good news when you get in the water, but it's not good news when you think about it. Why is it so warm? Why is it so warm? And one of the things I love in the ocean is to see a dolphin. And sometimes I see them and then I, I feel like, you know, like little kids, they run after birds. And of course the bird flies away. I, I swim after the dolphin. I can't stop myself. I'm trying to catch it. And of course it swims away. And then one day I really, really wanted to be with the dolphins. And so I thought, what if I just wish them loving kindness, just beam out love wherever they are. And I swear that this happened. And Christiana Wolf, um, my colleague, a teacher I mentored at Inside LA, saw it from the shore. Um, but I was out there and five dolphins came and swam in a circle around me. I thought, oh, this is the magic of loving kindness. Of course, when you try to duplicate that, doesn't happen. The pelicans come and the other birds come. And, um, the dolphins uh, don't come. You know, but it's like entering the ocean when you come to retreat and, and you step into the silence and it takes courage to be with ourselves like this. And with practice we grow in uh, that courage, gets stronger and and the urge to find what we don't yet know gets stronger too. Because if we just stay with what we know, then what? We get the life that we already know. And most of us, I mean, we didn't come to Esalen. You didn't come here to have the life you already know. You came here for something new to happen, something that you don't yet know. And it's, it's, and yet, it's like the dolphins. If we enter the water, if we enter the silence seeking with the mind that knows what it wants, how can that mind find the unknown? You know, how can that happen? Um, how do we invite a guest that we haven't met yet into our hearts, into our homes? Um, but when the searching stops, the dolphins come. Whatever your dolphins are, when the searching stops, when the water's quiet, when the wind stops. And this is a synonym for nibbana, nirvana, no wind. Just, you know, that stillness. Like this evening, when the sun's setting, there's no wind, so still. And then the unknown can come to us and, and come into being. And more and more we can 
we can trust. We can trust this. So um, I know that we have so much we would love to share with you, and I think a good way to share it would be through the the interaction, the questions and answers, and and I just want to end with a poem. This is a poem I stole from Jack. And I'm really happy because Jack has stolen so many poems. <laughs> and you know, we did a forgiveness practice yesterday. And um, you know, they say living well is the best revenge and things like that. Um, but stealing a poem feels good too. And sometimes we have to do things like that. Um, it's called The Sleepless Ones. And for those of us who don't always have great night sleeps, I had a great night's sleep last night, but it isn't every night, um, we understand about being awake in the night. It's a special time. What if all the people who could not sleep at 2 or 3 or 4 in the morning left their houses and went to the parks? What if hundreds, thousands, millions went in their solitude like a stream and each told their story? What if there were old people fearful that if they slept, they would die and young women unable to conceive and husbands having affairs and children fearful of failing and fathers worried and mothers worried about paying bills and women having business troubles and men unlucky in love and those that are in physical pain and those who are guilty. What if they all left their houses like a stream and the moon illuminated their way and they came, each one, to tell their stories. Would these be the more troubled of humanity? Or those who need to create to live? Or would these be the lonely ones? And I ask you, if they all came to the parks at night and told their stories, would the sun on rising be more radiant and again, I ask you, would they embrace? So this is a poem about the love that can be ours, could be ours. As Mary Oliver says, the world that could be ours. And this is the world that we want to create and be part of together and this is the world that we come to places like this and uh, learn to practice together. I mean there are many many ways to invite love into our lives, into our hearts, but we've come to learn the practices of mindfulness and compassion and loving kindness because these are the ways that we've practiced and learned and that we've learned we can trust that they actually work but it is, uh, there's one piece of bad news before I stop, um, which is, uh, you know, how they say in program, it works if you work it. Uh, that's the bad news about these practices. Uh, you have to do them for them to work. I mean, it's nice to have the books, you know, Jack's beautiful books on your bedside table or your podcasts or, I mean, all that is good, uh, com especially compared to what we often are thinking about. Um, but... We have to do the practices, and then they will work. They're not going to after thousands of years. I mean, you are very special, but you're not that special that they're going to hit a wall with you. They've worked for so many people, and they will work for you too. So um, I really do want to leave room for you and for us to have some dialogue with you. And so I will now set aside my rest of things um, and invite you for 
We have a mic, I'm sure, to pass around. Yeah. Yes, thank you, Kimiko. Um, those of you who might have an insight to share or question that you have, uh, please don't hesitate to raise your hand. When you speak of loving awareness, do you think every human being is born with loving awareness? Like Hitler, was he evil? Is every human good? I hope you say I yes. That's yeah. the, I think that's the deep question that you're asking. Yes. Is, you know, am I good? Um, is every human good? And I think for me, the answer to that question, you know, look at babies and ask, right? You Are not they love born them? good? How can you not love them? How can you not love them? And also, they're so ready to be joyful and to smile and, and love us back. And they really don't, and it's not just because we feed them, you know, like with our dogs or cats, but um, it's, they love us back. They are ready to love us. And we have to do, we have to really neglect them or you know, we have to do things to, to ruin that. And even so, I don't think anybody's damaged for life. I believe we can heal from whatever damage is done to our hearts. Mm. And as to the more abstract question, even Hitler, he couldn't do it alone. This is from Maya Angelou. It's called Alone. And she says, autoplay next video, lying, thinking last night, how to find my soul a home where water is not thirsty and bread loaf is not stone. I came up with one thing and I don't believe I'm wrong, that nobody but nobody can make it out here alone. Alone, all alone. This is the refrain, nobody but nobody can make it out here alone. So I think it's up to us, each one of us, to get to know the nooks and crannies of our hearts and the places where we might be tempted to join in activities or groups or you know, fired up rallies for things that aren't loving and aren't of love. And the more we know ourselves and what we stand for, the less likely we are to even unconsciously participate. Thank you. Yeah. Also, just to say in a slightly different part of what your question points to, when I do my loving kindness and compassion practice, I also periodically bring in world, current world figures and leaders, political and so forth, I think Bashar al-Assad in Syria or so forth, and I include them in the wishes I have. May you be free from hatred. May you be free from fear. You know, may you find uh, a love for yourself and others. And I wish that for everybody. I wish that for absolutely everyone. On stage, you're not only sharing some wonderful insights, but you're also role modeling a beautiful relationship. And you've also both been very um, courageous and authentic with us by telling us that you've had husbands and was wives. So I'm curious, based on a combination of um, your many years of practicing loving awareness and mindfulness and your past relationships, how do you? I guess the word is not fight fair, but how do you fight with and have conflict, uh, which inevitably arises in relationships with loving awareness and mindfulness in your current relationship? Are there any lessons there that we can take home? And I'm asking not only so that we can learn from this in the context of romantic and life partner relationships, but also work relationships, such as with our work wives and work husbands. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Do you want to go first? Do we have conflict here? <laughs> Never. I do. <laughs> I have conflict with you. <laughs> Go for it. He, of course, has none. <laughs> um, no, you go first. <laughs> Why? Why do you want me to go first? So I can have the last word. <laughs> you know, it's a work in progress. Trudy's actually more advanced in this. You um, get angrier quicker when you're angry and you let it go when it's done. And one of the things that's really healthy and helpful is to be enough in touch with feelings, including frustration or difficulty, to be able to express them. 
another which I've learned in myself, and there was that whole evening that um, I know you spent looking at how to be how to work with anger in a mindful way, that I know for myself when I get angry, sometimes it's useful to express it, but often underneath it I feel hurt or threatened or afraid in some way. And if I can say that, this this hurt, or this scares me, or I'm worried or something, rather than I'm pissed off about that, or I, you know, I, have some, I have a whole fantasy, this is all going to go terrible. If I can speak from the place that has more vulnerability, things go better in it. Um, but I also don't, Imagine that that conflict is bad. People are different, and they have different desires. And the point is not to have conflict go away, because it couldn't, but to be able to be present somehow for it. And I keep thinking globally, like when you're teaching kindergarten, and the you know one kid hits another with a block, and you say, "Okay, use your words." Couldn't that like go up the chain of command a little bit to <laughs> to uh, we need to find collectively as humanity different ways to solve our conflict than war. And, and just as we did away with slavery, more or less, there are still slaves and it's terrible, but mostly it's acknowledged that that's, the, that's not what we should do as humans. I think it's now time to say war is also not what we should be doing, that, that we can learn this starting with one another in, in a collective way. I think for me, you know, I didn't grow up in a family where anger was terrible. You know, it didn't lead to violence like in Jack's family or it didn't have that sense that getting angry was going to be horribly destructive in some way. So I think it's easier for me to just get mad and then that's it. And I do think that a lot of the skills that I practiced with couples as a psychotherapist they're really good, like use I statements, talk about how, you know, nonviolent communication without going through all the steps, which are just too cumbersome for me. But, but there are principles of, you know, speaking from how we feel and opposed to you made me feel, you know, blaming statements. One of the most helpful things I've learned just very simply comes from the guidelines for communication across differences that we have posted huge on the wall uh, in our meditation hall at Inside LA. And the one that has been the most helpful is the making a distinction and understanding the difference between intention and impact. So that I might say something perfectly well-intentioned to you, but to you it's a microaggression or it's just off and it made you feel bad or different or other or some something and that separates us instead of connects us and then you decide you have the courage to bring that up to me to say you know like Jack was saying you know when you said that it hurt my feelings usually our first reflex is to say oh but I didn't mean to you know I meant that I only meant that which is basically defensive you know, it is. We're defending. And we do that reflexively because we're so afraid of being blamed or wrong or bad or unloved. But if we can shift our attention to the impact of what we said, that maybe we didn't intend. I mean, sometimes maybe we did intend to hurt someone's feelings, but mostly we probably didn't and can be generous toward ourselves in that way. But shift to the impact I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings. I didn't realize, but it did. How what I intended really is irrelevant because this was the impact it had on you. So I think that's a very helpful thing. And it can be useful in all kinds of relationships. And we say across differences, maybe multiculturally, but, but anytime we have different opinions, <laughs> that's a difference right there. Recently, I read an article or a headline in Blendle which said that people who practice mindfulness are actually less happy in the workplace. Now, I didn't, I didn't read fully the article, and, and it's not really about the sense or nonsense of that, of that article. But what I was wondering, how would you advise to combine mindfulness with uh, mundane, let's say, dreams that you have or 
the, the everyday life of going to work and having a career, for example, how uh, do you have any advice in that respect? Can you say anything more about what makes you ask this particular question? I, my wife and I were relatively new to, to mindfulness um, and it's, uh, I find it difficult um, conceptually to combine being in the present with actually uh, going somewhere or having dreams or aspirations. Mm. That helps to hear that. That's beautiful. Um, I don't know anything about the article, so it's very hard to, to comment on it, but I will say that mindfulness, at least not the real mindfulness, but the, the way people are teaching and so forth, it can be used and it can be misused. And we're Americans, we know how to misuse anything. So it's sort of, so I can imagine that in some way, you will now be mindful, you know, okay, we have a mindful workplace and it's a form of repression or we're going to teach mindfulness and we also expect you to work 80 hours a week, but now that now that you have a mindfulness coach, you'll know how to do it and give your lifeblood to the... I mean, there's that kind of stuff. I, I don't know what's out there. Um, but the question that you ask that's really much closer to you is, um, how do I have dreams and visions and ambition, you know, or direction? And all I would say is mindfully. That to, the thing is that you're always here. You're actually no other place, right? This is what you got. You have the present moment. This is it. And in the present moment, we have this remarkable capacity also to remember and to, to plan. Those capacities are beautiful um, and they're really worth honoring. And sometimes they're really healthy and sometimes they're really unhealthy and tie you in knots. And that's where mindfulness becomes the great gift because you, as you sat today, you can see what's going on. And if you're obsessed in your work with getting ahead and getting money, you have this whole and you're missing your life, it's not healthy. On the other hand, if you have some creative idea, I want to make this and build this and so forth, and this is how I want to dedicate myself, and you tend that the way you would tend a garden, instead of trying to pull it up or judge yourself because I'm not there fast enough or all the other things that make you suffer. If you actually become mindful, then it's possible to choose a direction, to envision, to imagine in a healthy way. But you'll notice, even today, sitting quietly, how many thoughts you have that are reruns. It's like you're stuck in Motel 6 late at night and you can't get the TV turned off and it's running the same old programs in there over and over and over again and 90% of them are repeats. And then you realize, okay, thought is a great servant but not a very good master. So when you step back in quiet, deeper intuitions come, ability to follow your dream more clearly um, and to do so in a way that's mindful of your own your own well-being as you direct yourself. Good luck. <laughs> I mean, this is all, we're all learning how to do this together, you know. It's not like, oh, here's the great solution and we all know exactly how to do it. But you get better at it. So uh, my question is, for, for someone who's experienced trauma that's caused them to become deeply attached to things, to want to control or contain things, like that's their deeply ingrained strategy or impulse. How would you advise them to develop a non-attachment practice? Like when I experience pain or even joy, happiness or excitement fully uh, and completely without feeling this deep desire to contain or control or hold it, these fear-based strategies that I've developed to cope, how do I develop a non-attachment practice with that sort of as an instinctual reaction? This is a beautiful question because already it's you are demonstrating a lot of kind, loving awareness. Aware of the strategies, the fear, what you call your fear-based strategies to uh, help contain and protect the uh, fears that arise from your previous traumas. And also the wish to avoid that kind of pain is based on self-compassion. That we wish to avoid, you know, we wish to spare ourselves 
the pain of keeping on doing the things that don't free our hearts. And they may not be bad things to do, but they aren't freeing our hearts. So the non-attachment piece is a little tricky because in Buddhist psychology, non I mean, Buddhist psychology, attachment refers to places where we're really stuck, where things are just fixated and stuck. And in Western psychology, attachment refers to our capacity to make relationships and be connected, attuned to each other. Attachment in Western psychology is like an achievement, you know, learning to be close, intimate, connected, attuned. And I think it's confusing because sometimes when we first learn the Buddhist psychology teachings, we think that means we're not supposed to be attached to each other or attached to those we love or the things that we love. But it's okay to love what we love. It's important to love what we love. And it's not a problem until we need to let go of what we love. And can we do that? So for you, I think the, the way forward is this tenderness and compassion of seeing, oh, these are strategies of disconnection from experience that are based on my fears of what that experience might lead to or something else that I don't guess because I don't know you. But having some compassionate understanding, oh, I think you have this already, actually. You understand where these strategies of disconnection come from. And then the practice, we talk about sustaining our presence and being present with experience and continuous awareness and mindfulness. But when there's been trauma, it's a little different. Then we want to learn to touch and go. You know, experience, and then back away. Come close, take some space, have a rest. And so just that way, you know, little by little, little bits by little bits. And then you discover, oh, nothing bad happens. I actually felt all this joy, and the other shoe never dropped. It was okay. Nothing bad happened when I let down my guard. Nobody ran over my boundaries and did something awful to me. You know, you just try little by little by little. Um, what about uh, preserving or wanting to keep it and contain it and just being, uh, you know, constantly worried about losing? Well, you know that expression, kiss the joy as it flies, from William Blake? I mean, this is the nature. Yes, we want to, we want good things. Like, I want Jack to last. I don't want to lose him. I want him to last. That's natural. But I'm also aware of, do you see what I mean? I'm aware of it. And, you know, it's like that beautiful verse that Jack was alluding to from the Diamond Sutra, where the Buddha said, this is how you should look at everything. This is how you should see everything. So you should view, thus you should view this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. So if we can combine our wanting things to last <laughs> and hang on to them with the understanding of just how ephemeral this life is and be able to hold that bittersweet, poignant truth in our hearts, um, it's okay then. I think in this whole conversation and our practice together, we're really talking about trust and what allows us to learn a wise kind of trust, a trust that's true to saying that still has boundaries, but how is it that we can live in this world with its 10,000 joys and its 10,000 sorrows and trust that we have the capacity to open and to be present, present for it. And you do have that, that it was born into you, it is your Buddha nature, your birthright, and you're really reawakening, remembering it. Um, and it's very tender, so I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank
Thank you, everybody. Thank you for your attention, for your listening, for your practice. And now we return into silence. And in your silence, the stars are out there waiting for you, and the trees are waiting for you to walk under and wave their leaves to you, and the sweet ocean air waits for you. In your silence, somehow we'll be met by the beauty outside of the evening. So enjoy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's episode was produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our music is by Nico Holliman. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. If you're enjoying the show, please support us by sharing on social media or by going to your favorite podcast player and leaving a review. It really does help. Until next time, be well.